Thank you for listening to the Society of Critical Care Medicine's iCritical Care Podcast. The iCritical Care Podcast is copyrighted material and all rights are reserved. Statements of fact and opinion expressed in this podcast are those of authors and participants and do not imply an opinion on the part of the Society of Critical Care Medicine or its officers or members. Your host is the Society's Associate Editor for Podcasts, Dr. Richard Savell. Dr. Savell is the Associate Director of the Surgical Intensive Care Unit at Maimonides Medical Center in Brooklyn, New York. He also is an Assistant Professor of Medicine at the Mount Sinai School of Medicine. To contact the editorial staff of the iCritical Care Podcast with questions, comments, or ideas, please email info at sccm.org. Hello and welcome to the Society of Critical Care Medicine's iCritical Care Podcast. Today's Tuesday, February 20th, 2007. This podcast is being recorded during the Society of Critical Care Medicine's 36th Critical Care Congress here in Orlando, Florida. I'm Dr. Richard Savell. Today we have an opportunity to speak with Dr. Greg Martin, MD, who will be discussing the important topic of fluid management in the acute respiratory distress syndrome, focusing on some of his important and exciting research results. He recently presented at this Congress a presentation entitled Furosemide and Albumin in ARDS. Dr. Martin is currently an assistant professor of medicine at Emory University in Atlanta, Georgia, and he is also section head of pulmonary and critical care medicine at Grady Memorial Hospital, where he is currently the director of the medical intensive care unit and the coronary intensive care unit. Thank you so much for joining us today on the podcast. Thank you for the invitation, Richard. I'd love to begin by letting you provide a little bit of background on some of this, uh, some of the fundamental physiology and pathophysiology um, in terms of fluid balance in the lung. I know it's a very broad topic, but if you might want to share some of your thoughts, that would be great. That's a great place to start. So it actually turns out that that's really one of the reasons why we started on this whole pathway of investigation in the first place was that we had a good sense, at least based on sort of clinical intuition and the way we were taking care of patients, that that oncotic pressure and certainly hydrostatic pressure as well were relevant for patients with acute lung injury or ARDS. And so one of the things that we did early on is one of the fellows who was at Vanderbilt University at the same time as I was started looking at that from a more scientific perspective, trying to determine what role oncotic pressure truly plays in patients with acute lung injury. So one of the ways that this is Rob Mangilardi, and one of the ways he got at that was looking at the ibuprofen and sepsis study, which was a large one of the larger sepsis studies conducted at the time to try and understand of those patients who had sepsis and went on to develop ARDS or acute lung injury, whether oncotic pressure played a role in the development of acute lung injury and any adverse or other clinical outcomes. And so what he found was that in that study, about 40% of the patients developed ARDS, and over 90%, around 92% actually turned out to be hypoproteinemic, so hypoproteinemia being a good surrogate measure for a low oncotic pressure. And it turns out that as you do a more formal analysis of that, so let's say a regression model where you can adjust for other confounders or things that might alter the risk for 
um, and adverse clinical outcomes. So you're adjusting for severity of illness, for instance. It turns out that oncotic pressure or serum total protein is one of the most highly predictive variables for a lot of the adverse outcomes that we think of. So it's predictive of the development of ARDS, but it's also predictive for patients who develop ARDS of prolonged mechanical ventilation and mortality. So that sort of, when we started looking at that, then we started trying to think about that in terms of Starling's law or the, the equation that was originally described by Ernest Starling back in the 1890s, where he said that there's a certain, there's certain things that determine fluid flux across a semipermeable membrane. And we think of that in terms of edema, particularly pulmonary edema, but it really could be almost anything. So it's, it's, it's a more general equation. When you think about it in terms of pulmonary edema, we often think about hydrostatic pressure, oncotic pressure, and capillary permeability. So how permeable is the capillary to fluid leak? Um, and just to take, take a step back for the listeners, the, the focus of your, or one of the primary foci of your research has been, as opposed to looking at something like ventilator-induced lung injury, that one of the questions you're asking is, is keeping the fluid out of the lungs, particularly with combinations of diuretics and albumin associated with improvements in outcome. And, and, and you must have opinions on this, the, the paradox that was seen with low tidal volumes where the patients were more hypoxic but did better. And I know we're sort of jumping ahead, but, but these are the, this is the fundamental question you're trying to answer, right? Right. So the, the general concept, at least, is that if you think about it physiologically, that if you believe that, that oncotic pressure is an important component of, let's say, adverse outcomes with acute lung injury, then we know that there are ways you can manipulate oncotic pressure. And so physiologically, our first, our first attempt at this was simply to say, we'd like to try and improve as many of Starling's variables as possible towards lung fluid resorption, to try and dry out the lung and improve lung physiology. And in some ways, there's certain things you can affect. You can certainly affect oncotic pressure by giving an oncotic substance like albumin. You can influence hydrostatic pressure by reducing hydrostatic pressure with diuretics, for instance, or ultrafiltration, other things. And most of those strategies, at least a lot of the hydrostatic strategies, have been shown to be somewhat effective in the past. People have studied fluid restrictive strategies, or even Roger Bowen in a lot of his early work studied diuresis or forms of sort of fluid removal. And often you saw some benefit in terms of pulmonary physiology, but often you also saw an adverse effect on hemodynamics. So patients, if you give diuretics, you might induce hypotension or shock. And that was one of the confounding problems of trying to simply manipulate hydrostatic pressure alone. And this is different um, from review articles that point out about diuresing patients for the sake of diuresing them to convert oligoric into non-oligoric renal failure that doesn't necessarily seem to be associated with so good outcomes. This is a different uh, philosophical approach, right? Right. It's really different entirely. So the general concept is that we're trying to generally force as many of Starling's variables as possible towards dry lung. So if you can, if you can influence the lung as a semipermeable membrane to move fluid out of the lung and into the vasculature where you can get rid of the fluid, that's sort of the general concept. So you can visualize this, or at least the way I, I think about it visually is, if you give an oncotic substance that pulls fluid into the vasculature, and you also give a diuretic to try and move fluid out of the vasculature by filtration through the kidneys, that's really what you're doing. You're trying to mobilize fluid, and in this case, for us, with acute lung injury patients, we're trying to mobilize fluid out of the lungs. And one of the questions I had reading your your, your papers uh, on this w- was that the, the 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 classic teaching of ARDS as non cardiogenic pulmonary edema with a fundamental problem is uh, injured uh, capillaries or, or, or alveolar. Uh, epithelium or endothelium. Um, But in some of your papers, you talk about how there may be components of hydrostatic pulmonary edema as part of this as well, if if I think I got that right, or if you'd like to talk about that. 
Right. So I think one of the things that we now realize is that um, in most patients with acute lung injury, there's a component of there's a variety of components that contribute to pulmonary edema. multifactorial. Right. So when we think about acute lung injury, we think about permeability as the primary cause of the edema. But if you look at measures where they've actually tried to measure permeability, the permeability is not zero. There's always some sort of intact barrier function. It's just maybe severely limited. And at the same time, when you look at clinical trials for acute lung injury, a lot of those patients, in some cases more than 80%, will have at least intermittently raised hydrostatic pressure. So if you're using wedge pressure, for instance, as a, as a measure of hydrostatic pressure. And then from our data and others, we know that oncotic pressure is also often reduced in those patients. So when you put all those together, there's a variety of these things that physiologically, described by Starling again, would tell you that fluid balance in the lung is affected probably by each of those things. Now, it's over the years, people have attempted in a lot of ways to try and alter permeability. If you could fix the permeability of the, of the membrane, let's say, that would ideally be a good way of fixing acute lung injury. But we've never been very good at that. I mean, that's one of the things that is sort of so the holy grail. there's not a pill yet to fix the capillary right. leakiness yet. So then that's one of the reasons why we've looked at the other variables. So if we can manipulate hydrostatic and oncotic pressure, perhaps that might help as well, because those do seem to contribute to pulmonary edema and acute lung injury. Well, that segues uh, actually very nicely into uh, a little bit of a discussion of your research over the past, I guess, five or six years that has, in a step-by-step fashion, tried to pick apart some of these variables. And if you'd like to take a few minutes to talk about that, that'd be great. Thank you. Yes. So um, as one of the things that we did initially after following the original study that Rob Mangelardi published looking at Um, the predictive factors for acute lung injury and oncotic pressure being an important predictive factor is then we said, well, knowing that, knowing that fact and understanding Starling's law, what we'd like to do is design a trial where we could clinically intervene and try and maximize lung fluid absorption to improve physiology. And so the concept then was to take patients who had acute lung injury and randomize them to treatment with albumin and furosemide or two placebos. And so patients in one group got what we thought was sort of the best way to maximize lung fluid resorption by increasing oncotic pressure and reducing hydrostatic pressure. And patients in the other group got what would be a reasonable standard of care. They didn't get either one of those, which were not necessarily common. And so in that study, that was roughly a 40-patient study in which patients in the treatment group who got albumin and furosemide had substantial improvements in oxygenation. They diureased not surprisingly, diureased a lot. They diureased about 10 kilos of body weight over a five-day period. And at the same time, despite all that diuresis, their hemodynamics actually tended to be better over time. So the major outcome of that study, at least in terms of lung physiology, was that oxygenation was substantially improved by about 40%. So significant improvement in oxygenation. But that trial... And that was the initial trial with with, uh, just looking at furosemide, right? That was the initial trial where we where half the patients got albumin and furosemide and the other half got two placebos. Okay. So it was sort of, it was what we thought was the maximum way of trying to influence lung fluid resorption, I see. albumin and furosemide together okay. versus two placebos, which was sort of a reasonable sort of approximation of the normal standard of care. But after having done that, then we realized that that study didn't really answer a lot of the questions. And in, in retrospect, had we had the resources and the ability to do it, we would have done more combinations of treatment at the time. But that we exponentially simply, increases the number of patients you right. need, right? So at the time, we wanted to do that first study as a proof of concept of whether this whole theory based on Starling's law and our, our other data was real and would work. 
Now, having done that, we believe that it was, but it didn't answer all the questions. So what we really wanted to try and understand within was, could you achieve the same thing with furosemide alone? Let's say if you just diuresed patients with acute lung injury, could you actually achieve the same thing alone? Or if you did that, would that result in adverse effects on hemodynamics, for instance? Or some people had also argued in the past that giving albumin might actually cause problems because it might leak into the interstitium and worsen pulmonary edema. So we wanted to try and understand, was albumin an important component of this regimen? Could you do the same thing with furosemide alone? And you know, what are the specific effects of albumin? But the, but just catching up with the thing uh, that you said a little bit back, the, the, the concept, though, of doing the most possible to figure out whether or not to stop is actually, I mean, it does sound very reasonable to say that we've given the maximum possible benefit and it will help us by answering the fundamental question, is this worthy of further study, right? right. Just to reiterate what you said, because I right. thought that was an important point. And that's, yeah, and I think that's exactly why we started there, is we really felt like if we're going to try and do this and see that it might impact patient care in some way, we want to try and do it, I think, in the maximal way first to try and understand the true potential benefit, and then later we can go back and elucidate some of the mechanisms and some of the other things that might play into that. Um, so, so go on. I'm sorry. And then to the so next the, step. So the, the next thing we did then, because we didn't obviously understand all the potential of the different drug combinations, was we conducted a second trial of roughly the same size, so about 40 patients, randomized now into two groups. One group got albumin and furosemide again. The other group got furosemide alone. So technically, they got furosemide and placebo, so it was a double-blinded study. But one group now is getting what we still believe to be the maximum combination, the best combination of potential treatment based on the first study. And then the other group got furosemide alone as basically a diuretic regimen. And that study was really interesting to conduct in the sense that what we found was that patients, acute lung injury patients, who got the albumin and furosemide together actually ended up diuresing more than patients who got furosemide alone. So both groups diuresed, but the albumin and furosemide group turned out to diurese more, partially because of more hemodynamic instability in the furosemide alone group. So those patients tended to develop hypotension or shock more often, and therefore the furosemide would be stopped and fluid administration would be given to resolve that. So they would, they would uh, more often fall out of the protocol or fall out of the diuretic protocol? Right. Exactly. And when I was talking to Dr. Bernard about this last time, you were using continuous infusions of, uh, of the diuretics, is that right? Right. So we had chosen continuous infusion Lasix or furosemide for two or three reasons. One is, is that there was a little bit of data already out there that suggested that that resulted in fewer electrolyte disturbances. It may achieve a little bit more diuresis than intermittent dosing, but it probably also results in a little bit less hemodynamic compromise because you're not giving intermittent larger boluses, you're giving sort of a slow dose. And in our cases, what we usually find is the doses are fairly low. They're somewhere around five to seven milligrams per hour of furosemide, which is not a high dose. Um, so having, having done that study, it's sort of interesting in the sense that we found better diuresis in the patients who got albumin with the furosemide. Um, and again, as with the previous study, we saw that patients in the albumin-treated group had substantial improvements in oxygenation, again, within 24 hours, and an effect that seemed pretty durable over time. So again, we saw a similar change in pulmonary physiology in terms of oxygenation that suggests that we are, in fact, improving lung function in acute lung injury patients. And then we started to look back at some of the clinical outcomes, and there's not a major difference in mortality for these patients, at least not large. In but a, as you in said in your studies, these are small. They're so they're small trials, studies. which clearly are not not powered to determine whether a mortality outcome may may exist. But we do obviously look at other things. But one of the things that you might expect to impact is the duration of mechanical right. ventilation. So for acute lung injury patients, that's often one of the major outcomes you're interested in. 
in our studies, you simply can't use duration of mechanical ventilation because if people die, they're not on the ventilator. And that's not really what you're looking for. What you're looking for is people who come off the ventilator and have days alive and free of mechanical ventilation. So that's ventilator-free days. And when we've looked at those two trials that I just described, both of them have a not statistically significant difference, but a trend towards more days alive and free of mechanical ventilation in the patients who get the albumin and furosemide combination. So it suggests that if all that were true statistically, there would be what I think is a true clinical outcome benefit. And when you were giving the albumin uh, in these patients, it wasn't targeting a particular CVP. If I remember, it was the serum level, right? Right. So we we enrolled patients who were hypo-oncotic or hypoproteinemic to start with, and that was one of the eligibility criteria. So they had to have a serum total protein level that was relatively low to start with. So our earlier studies had indicated that levels less than six, which would sort of the lower limit of normal in most laboratories, indicated a high risk for bad outcomes with ARDS, and certainly less than five. So our studies have in general enrolled people who are hypoproteinemic to start with, and then the albumin is titrated towards a normalization of serum total protein or oncotic pressure. And um, at least in the first study, we had um, roughly 40% of the patients would actually normalize their oncotic pressure during the treatment period, in which case we didn't continue to give albumin. The, the goal wasn't to make them super normal. It was simply to normalize things. Um, and before we sort of uh, conclude on that, I guess the next question would be, uh, given what you've done, it sounds like the next step then since it, it appears that your, your study then showed that the combination is better than that alone, you're heading towards, I guess, larger trials at this point to look at some of the mortality potential benefit? Right. So there's, there's two ways that I think are very reasonable tacks that we're looking at both of them, actually, because I think both would be the right way to go. One is, is to try and understand the mechanisms. So we didn't really talk about this yet, but one of the issues that we've, we've looked at is why do we see the outcomes that we do, and particularly the changes in oxygenation? So I mentioned that we see changes in oxygenation that are fairly dramatic within 24 hours of initiation of drug therapy, but yet a lot of the things that we measure in terms of, let's say, fluid balance or serum total protein, those kinds of things don't change that much within 24 hours. So it's an early effect that we're seeing that's not completely explained by what we normally think of as perhaps showing us the starling variables that you would look at. And so one of the things we've done in collaboration with Tim Evans in London, who is a, a, an expert in antioxidant function and particularly the sort of biological roles of albumin, is looking at whether albumin might actually modulate some of the inflammatory response in acute lung injury and particularly sort of the antioxidant mechanism. So albumin is known to be a very potent extracellular antioxidant. And so it um, it's in humans, it's known to to have significant potential for improving antioxidant status. So there was one study that was done by Tim Evans' group a few years ago where they gave albumin to patients with sepsis, showed that they were they were oxidant, under oxidant stress at the time, and you could show that their thiol levels would rise after administration of albumin, and that seemed to show a rise in total antioxidant capacity of plasma at the same time. We looked at those same types of measures in our acute lung injury patients, and we see a very similar signal that seems to suggest that that there may be a biological sort of non-oncotic or non-colligative role of albumin that's contributing to what we're looking at. So so it's not just the fact that it's pulling the, the fluid into the capillaries. It's other 
properties of the albumin itself. Well, and we, we think it is, and that's one of the reasons why we'd like to sort of do a few more studies looking purely at mechanism now. So even though I think we have a good sense for the the physiologic and maybe even the clinical potential of the drug therapy, we'd like to try and understand some of the mechanisms as well, which is the other part of your question was, is how do you investigate the clinical outcomes and is that the next thing? And I think the answer is clearly yes, that we have basically, if you think about this in sort of a a series of drug trials, you've got two what would qualify as phase two type studies, which suggest benefit that's fairly consistent between the two studies. You've got a reasonably strong signal suggesting some clinical, reasonably clinical benefit for this combination of therapy. And if that's true, then the next step would really to be a larger trial. And the larger trial would be um, looking at ventilator-free days or mortality as the outcome. And I think for the trials that we've done so far, ventilator-free days is probably the most reasonable outcome to look at, in which case you're talking about probably somewhere between three and 600 patients being enrolled into that type of trial. Uh, and I, I have two uh, follow-up questions. Um, one is, um, but then I would imagine the control group from what you were trying to discuss with me would then really be placebo. They wouldn't need to, you wouldn't need to do any more about albumin or Lasix or, or furosemide, sir. I think that's right. So there's a couple of things that play into that. One is, is that if you're trying to understand the mechanisms, the control group might be different because one of the things that would be interesting to do that we've, we've designed is a trial where part of the patients would get albumin and furosemide and part would get a synthetic colloid like starch, a head of starch and furosemide. So the rationale being... To take being, out the biological effect of the albumin. Right. So now you've got something that's got the same oncotic potential, but a different biological molecule that shouldn't have the same antioxidant functions. And then you can try and elucidate some of those those other mechanisms. So that's one way, if you're thinking about the mechanisms, is we've, we've designed a study that will hopefully get started relatively soon looking at those two combinations. Now, if you're thinking about sort of the larger trial you have to sort of think about the fact study as well. So the fact study done by the ARDS network over the last few years, published just in the last nine months or so, says that that diuresis alone is beneficial and it does improve outcomes. So I think now what you're looking at is the standard of care for acute lung injury patients has changed somewhat. So I don't think you I don't think you would necessarily enroll patients into a placebo only arm anymore. I mean, it may be placebo, but it's going to be a more controlled placebo arm. So it's going to represent the current standard of care, which really should be sort of a fluid-restrictive, fluid-conservative, diuretic sort of regimen where you're, you're managing fluid balance on that kind of basis. But oh, I was, uh, that was one of my other follow-up questions is, when, as, a, as a researcher in this field, you must have sort of an essential tension of, on the one hand, wanting to get the mechanism right, but on the other hand, when you see a positive signal, trying to get it as soon as possible to a large study to see if there is mortality benefit, things like that. Right. right. Yeah. So it's, I mean, that's sort of one of the things that's always difficult about clinical research is not only do you, do you like to try and move forward as quickly as possible, and as I just sort of alluded to, the standard of care changes over time. So, you know, the trials that we've done in the past tended to use placebo as the control group, which was a very reasonable standard of care. It might still be, but yet it has to have some superimposed control so that you're you're adjusting for what is sort of the appropriate best practices at the time. Um, moving things forward in, in a clinical research program is always sort of difficult because you've got to have the right patient population, and particularly doing larger studies that we're talking about where you're enrolling hundreds of patients requires a multi-center type trial, and that takes a lot more time to get set up. Would the uh, ARDSnet be integrating some of your ideas, or is that a plan in the future to do that as one of their next trials as far as... So they've, they've thought about it, and I think it's one of those things that, that could come about, but there's, there's a, 
a few reasons why it may or may not. One is, is that ArgeNet has a variety of other things that they want to do. So a lot of people probably know that ArgeNet is now going to start a beta agonist trial, looking at beta agonist as potential therapy for acute lung injury. And there's a variety of other things that the ArgeNet is looking at as potential trials. And having just completed the FACT trial, I think it makes them a little bit less interested in saying, well, let's go back and study fluid balance again. Because they got a lot of because as you were telling me, and I know from, from my own experience, that this takes its years and years of work. So they'll choose their, their pick their battles, pick their battles very, very carefully, right? Right. And they, they tend to pick them long ahead of time. So that if we were, if ArgeNet were going to do this, which I know they've thought about, it, and it's the kind of thing that's been under discussion, they wouldn't do it for a few years, I think, simply because of the other things that they've already got planned in their works. Which gives you a few more years to work out some more mechanisms and things like that, At right? At least. Um, I thought we'd conclude by letting you talk for a few minutes about your important and interesting work that you did with the role of the, the daily chest x-ray in the ICU and, and volume status and outcomes. Maybe if you'd like to, maybe for residents or, or fellows that haven't had a chance to read that in detail to talk about that. Sure. So that's actually a really interesting study that, that came out of another sort of clinical intuition that we really felt like you could get more information out of the chest x-ray than we were currently getting. And from work that had been done by other people, particularly from Wes Ely, who really had adopted this as an ICU-type strategy, um, we felt like we probably had one of the better patient populations to look at this. So people had looked at x-rays, even from the 1970s and 80s, as a way of trying to estimate volume status in patients. And if you have people who are otherwise normal, who stand up and take regular upright PA chest x-rays, the quality of those is reasonably good, and you can get some sense for volume status. But for patients who have supine portable chest x-rays in the ICU, and for people who are critically ill or on a ventilator, that becomes much more difficult. So briefly then, Wes Ely had, had tried to adopt some of those same strategies that were originally described in the 70s and 80s to how you would interpret x-rays for volume status in the 1990s. And what he did is he looked at patients who had PA catheters in and tried to match up some of the radiologic parameters with wedge pressure, for instance, as a way of sort of saying, well, what are the radiologic correlates of an increase in wedge pressure? And so what he found was that there are certain things that had been described before, like the vascular pedicle width, sort of the width of the vascular pedicle in the mediastinum, um, the cardiothoracic ratio, which is the ratio of the heart size to the whole thoracic diameter. Those kinds of things are relatively objective measures, which he found correlated with volume status. But the one thing that he hadn't ever done or hadn't been able to be done in the past was looking at changes over time. So here we had two trials that had been done where we had manipulated volume status and done very detailed measures of fluid balance on a daily basis for patients in the ICU. And as acute lung injury patients, they, of course, had x-rays every day as well. So one of the things that we really saw was a great clinical resource and the potential to answer a question, which was, can x-rays on a daily basis be used to judge changes in volume status? So not just as a single shot in time, but changes over time. And it turns out that um, it probably works better over time than it does as an individual static measure. As you might guess, that if you have a baseline for an individual patient and you look at it from today to tomorrow, you're more likely to be able to determine what's changed and whether there's a difference in fluid balance than you were looking at a single x-ray, simply because there's so much variation between patients and the technique and the x-ray and all that. So what we really found is that patients who are diuresed and having changes in fluid balance, that probably the one parameter that is best for determining 
the measures of fluid balance or changes is the vascular pedicle width. It's a it's an objective measure of sort of volume status that you can make on an X-ray where you're measuring across the mediastinum, and that changes fairly reliably with volume status. Now I'm I'm just thinking as you're talking here that you go to all kinds of uh, all kinds of sessions at this conference where they'll point out to you the limitations of measuring preload and preload isn't the same as being volume responsive and the non-invasive ways of measuring it and so I think you're trying to tackle one of these uh, very complicated problems and using an x-ray might be another way to help try and get some get your foot on the ground in some sort of a solid way. Well, it's certainly one of the things that's most clinically relevant. I mean, we think about all the things that we do in the ICU and often most of the patients we have in the ICU have a daily x-ray and we often don't get that much information. And I don't think it's because I don't think it's because it's not there. It's because we don't look for it. And so the information is often there. It's just that we need to have better ways of actually looking at it. And I think what this what this study we're just talking about says is that if you're more detailed and diligent about looking at it on a daily basis, you often can see that there is something going on in terms of fluid balance. So, you know, one of the things that we have in a lot of hospitals that people complain about is, do you get good eyes and O's on patients? Or can you get a good change in daily weight? Well, some of those things aren't very good. In our study, we did them ourselves, and they were very detailed, so we felt comfortable knowing that they were accurate. But in the ICU, if they're not, you can also look at the x-ray and say, well, I'm not sure what happened with their volume status, but their x-ray tells me that they look more fluid overloaded, and therefore I believe that diuresis, for instance, might be the right strategy for today. Um, uh, I'd like to end it by giving you an opportunity if there's any sort of final comments that you'd like to make about uh, any of these issues. Well, so the the other thing that I think is worth remembering is that the fact study was really a wonderful piece of information to come out. So again, a large study, a thousand patients enrolled and 500 in each group randomized to fluid restrictive or, or more fluid liberal. And it tells us that you can get patients off the ventilator about two and a half days earlier if you just pay attention to a fluid restrictive sort of diuretic based regimen. And it's not really forcing people towards diuresis as aggressively as we did. So we actually, in our studies, used continuous daily infusion of furosemide and achieved a net fluid loss over time. Whereas in the in the FACT study, if you look at the, the net sort of intake output and fluid balance, the patients in the fluid conservative arm really were neutral each day. They didn't actually lose fluid each day, but they were they neutral. They didn't gain. Right, and they didn't gain. And that's the, really the important thing is that the average patient with acute lung injury gains about a liter or so a day just because of being in the ICU and all the things that they get. And so paying attention to fluid balance, I think, is one of the messages that really comes out of that is that we need to pay more detailed attention to that, particularly in a patient with acute lung injury. And from what I remember talking with Dr. Bernard and reading the study for our, for our listeners, and please correct me, but it was if you weren't in shock, if you had a good urine output, your lower extremities were warm and well-perfused, then you had a target CVP of less than four. Is, is that's that right. In a nutshell. That's right. And I think that's, and so you sort of make a good point because remember there was also two groups. There was the PA catheter group and the CV, the central venous catheter group. And there was no difference between those. So I think that the general concept then is you can use a central venous catheter for monitoring that. The goal is a CVP less than four. But the other thing to remember is that in that study, they didn't get to a CVP of four right, very right, often. Right. So the, the real endpoint of a lot of those patients was a CVP closer to eight or nine. Mm. So clearly there was separation, and clearly there was diuresis, and patients in the fluid-restrictive group had a reduction in hydrostatic pressures. But I, I, I say that mainly because the goal is not to get your patient to a CVP of four. The goal is to get your patient as dry as you can comfortably get them, ideally without causing hemodynamic compromise. 
Well, um, I could talk to you for a while longer, but I think we'll, we'll kind of stop here. Uh, we've been having a great opportunity to speak today during the Society of Critical Care Medicine's 36th Critical Care Congress with Dr. Gregory Martin, MD, regarding the uh, very interesting and dynamic area of uh, fluid status in patients with ARDS and his research focus on furosemide and albumin. Thanks so much for joining us today on the podcast. Thank you very much, Richard. This concludes our podcast for Tuesday, February 20th, 2007. If you have comments, questions, or ideas for future podcasts, please call the Society of Critical Care Medicine's audio feedback line at 1-847-493-6498 to share your thoughts. For the iCritical Care Podcast, I'm Dr. Richard Sabell. Gain a multi-professional practice-enhancing perspective on cornerstone interventions and current controversies in treating anemia in the critically ill and injured patient during the second installment of SCCM's Clinical Focus Series, Anemia in the Critically Ill and Injured Patient, to be held April 12th through the 13th, 2007, in San Antonio, Texas, USA. Expert intensive care providers from multiple disciplines and specialties will stimulate thought-provoking discussions through compelling examinations of anemia and transfusion practice, red blood cell transfusion indications and associated risks, and transfusion reduction and alternatives. Register today by visiting www.sccm.org or calling 1-847-827-6888.